Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? Whether you're, yeah, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, honored to have you along for the ride. Before we go any further, how about that band today? Am I right? Wow, that, that was amazing. I was inviting some friends to join us, and I don't know if they're here this morning, but if they are, I, I warned them that the music was pretty amazing, and it was. So anyway, it, and it is, but anyway, uh, super excited to gather. Today, we get to begin a brand new series called The Journey to Faith, and it's all about what it looks like for an adult to make a decision to become a Christian. And uh, here's how it's going to work for the next few weeks. I'm going to present some of my best thinking about how this tends to happen, how someone can move from simply being curious about Jesus uh, to actually being committed to following him. Uh, In other words, it is my admittedly ambitious attempt to invite those of you who aren't yet Christians to seriously consider becoming one. Uh, And honestly, this is a series that has been marinating in my mind and heart for a really long time, specifically because of some of the people who visit us at Keystone. I mean, we've long been known as a place where people come to explore faith in Jesus. And, And to be fair, some are genuinely curious about Jesus for one reason or another. And I know that some of you came because you met someone special right? For whom faith was super important, and you got the sense if the relationship was going to work out, then you really needed to figure the Jesus thing out. And there's no shame in that, okay? Just right out of the gate. But all that to say, each time we gather, I know that there are at least a few people among us and online are in the process of investigating Jesus. And maybe this morning, that's you. I mean, maybe you're here, you're tuning in online, and, and you've been here, and you've been listening, and you've been thinking, and you've been discussing but for one reason or another, you've like never crossed the line of faith. And, and if we sat down over coffee, which we should, and I, and I ask you, you know, why, you'd have a few good reasons, right? Like you might have trouble, you know, reconciling a good God with all of the bad that you see in our world. Or maybe for you, if you're honest, you're like, I can't cross the line of faith because of Christians, Like, they drive me nuts, right? And some of them, they're not very nice people. Like, some of my non-Jesus-y friends are nicer than some of my friends who identify as a Christian. So that's a reason. And, and, uh, or maybe for you, um, maybe you were raised in a different faith tradition or even no faith tradition. And And you struggle with the exclusivity of Jesus' message. I've heard that over and over again over the years. Uh, Moreover, if you were to embrace faith in Jesus, then you would also be communicating to your family Well, that they're kind of wrong. And so you're like, the cost of that is very, very high. And so, or maybe for you, it's something a little more theological. I've got a friend like this. Um, He said to me, you know, I struggle with the idea that someone else could pay for my sins. He said, I was taught to take responsibility for my actions. And so kind of like the idea of grace, and he loves the song Amazing Grace. That's just kind of fun. But he said, the idea of grace, he just, it just seems a bit offensive to me. So that's a reason. Uh, or maybe for you, it's, it's, it's like it's the miracles that you read that Jesus did. You, you're like, how, how can that be possible? And that causes you to struggle. I mean, there are so many valid reasons that people hold back from crossing the line of faith in Jesus. And maybe, maybe if it's you and you've got reasons right now, some of the ones I just, are the ones I just talked about. Maybe you've got others. But whatever your objections, you know that if I simply told you to ignore those objections and become a Christian anyway, you'd say, I can't, Right? Because that wouldn't be intellectually honest. And again, that's totally fair. Nonetheless, I'm still really excited for this series. And here's why. 
I've been a pastor now for a long time, and I'm telling you, in my experience, and, and this may really surprise you, but adults don't generally become Christians after working through their objections. I mean, it can happen. I've seen it, but it's extremely rare. Uh, like, there are resources that you can seek that will provide intellectually satisfying answers to your questions about faith, and there's books and podcasts, there's conferences you can attend. But here's the thing. Most adults aren't argued into crossing the line of faith in Jesus by having all their questions answered. Instead, again, in my experience, it's often something, something that happens that sort of reduces the importance of their questions in such a way that they can actually pick them up and carry them across the line of faith in Jesus. Most often, it's something like um, a tragedy or a transition or a loss that sort of shrinks their questions or maybe shrinks the importance of their questions. It's almost like when someone's need to connect with Jesus goes up, their objections and questions about Jesus fade. And eventually, and friends have told me this over and over again, they reach a moment of surrender. And, and somehow, and this only makes sense if you've experienced it, at that moment of surrender, God meets them in that space in an undeniably personal way. I think of a friend I had lunch with recently who readily confesses that he first began to pray after suddenly losing his job at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, I mean, he would tell you that honestly, he still struggles with the idea that Jesus walked on water and he still wonders how they got the dinosaurs onto the ark. <laughs> you know, important stuff. And uh, he's like, the T-Rex is going to eat everybody. He's like, how does that work? I said, I don't know. You know, I, you know, great question. Oh, you know, still wonders about whether, you know, the, the days of creation were literal days. And, and nonetheless, with all these questions, he still would tell you that he prays every day. And if you said why, he would tell you because he said, when the moment when I reached the end of myself, God touched my life in a way that's hard to put into words, and I have never been the same. And now, if you're paying attention right now, um, especially if, if you're more, you know, analytically inclined like I am, you probably have an objection because you're thinking, dude, there's no way that I'm going to set aside my very valid objections and questions and embrace faith in Jesus, even when my life falls apart and I reach into myself. That's not going to happen. And uh, if that's what you're thinking, that's fair. But if that's what you're thinking, I need to alert you to something that may surprise you because whether you realize it or not, You've already done something very similar in your life at least once, and I'll prove it to you. First, I will talk to the married guys, and then I will talk to the ladies. So first, married guys, I need to ask you a question. Do you remember the list of reasons that you had, like back in the day, not to get married? Remember that? And we can be honest, you had a list, we all did, and ladies, don't judge us. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure God made us this way. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, for the sake of this conversation, and so the rest of you don't get in trouble, here's my list. I made it for you and made it pretty on the screen, right? So back when I was in college, I remember thinking I didn't want to get married, uh, or maybe I wasn't sure I wanted to get married, because first, I didn't want to give up my freedom, Right? I mean, I wanted to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it, and I didn't want to get anyone else's permission first, right? So I just recall my first reason, freedom. Good reason not to get married. Second, I recognized 
I didn't have enough money, right, for marriage. I didn't have enough money to get married, and I certainly didn't have enough money to be married because I didn't have enough money to get all the stuff I wanted, let alone another person, right? So back in the day, in my mind, that was a good reason. And then, and then, this is interesting, there were all of the married people I knew who honestly didn't seem all that happy, right? I remember thinking, I, I think I'd rather be lonely and single than miserable and stuck. Just me, right? Yeah. So I wasn't sure that marriage was going to make me happy. And so that was another one of my reasons. And finally, and, and just being honest, I remember wondering how I'd feel if like during my wedding reception, I met somebody else. Like, what if the DJ was really cute, right? And I had that thought flash through my mind, dude, I picked the wrong girl. And I thought, this happens because I've seen it on Hallmark Channel movies, okay? I have, I have seen it. It can happen. But that, that was my list. And if you're a married guy, even though you probably shouldn't admit it, because if you're sitting next to him, you're going to get elbowed, right? You probably had one. So that said, here's my question. Did you? Work through all of your objections before you got married. Of course you didn't, right? In fact, I was thinking about it this week. I don't think I've ever met a dude who worked through all of his questions before he got married. Like, ever. I don't know a guy who, like, went to the bookstore and read a book that convinced him that marriage was worth giving up his freedom. Right? And I don't know a guy who believed that he had enough money before he got married to be married. So i got to ask you, what happened? If you didn't work through all of your questions what happened? And I'll tell you what happened because it happened to me too. You fell in love, right? And when you did, everything changed. Like all of your doubts and objections and questions, all those reasons you had not to get married sort of retreated into the back of your mind and heart. They sort of shrunk away. And if you think about it, like before love came to town, that's a great song, right? Before love came to town, marriage was like a concept, and as long as it was just a concept, you were able to make a relatively objective cost-benefit analysis of it, right? But see, then when love came to town, suddenly marriage, it wasn't just a concept anymore. You were no longer talking about getting married. You were talking about Mary, right? See what I did there? Mary. Or Susan, or Sandra, or Sarah, right? You get the idea. No longer was marriage about women. For you, it was about women. It was about them, it became personal. And when that happened, your questions didn't seem nearly that significant. Okay, that was for the married guys. Now, <clears throat> ladies, let's talk for a minute about having a baby, okay? Because let's be honest, at the end of a pregnancy, you have to put your body through something completely ridiculous, right? Maybe, maybe you've had this happen. I've witnessed birth four times, and I'm telling you, if men had to have babies, the world would never get overcrowded. This would not be a problem. And I can say that because we men are fragile, emotional beings. Right? Yeah, right. Anyway, it's a lot of work to have a baby. And then you have the baby. That's not the end. You have to raise the baby to be a toddler, which is terrifying. And then they become a kid. And you, what just fell? I don't even know. And then you, you, then you have to raise this kid to become horror of horrors, a teenager, and you begin praying daily, thanking the Lord for granting Caitlin, right? Yeah, but the time and the energy and the resources required in this project are absolutely staggering. So much so that I think it's easy for us all to admit that no rational person would ever have a child if it required that they work through all of their objections first. But as you know, 
That's not how it works. Because again, something happens that causes our very legitimate objections to retreat into the back of our minds and hearts. I mean, before you decided to have a child, you were just thinking about the challenges of children. But then everything changed when you sensed that the time had come for you to have your child. And again, your all too valid objections about parenthood suddenly didn't seem all that important anymore. Instead of being like intellectual or categorical, it became personal. And, and I say all that to say, in my experience, that's how adults become followers of Jesus. It doesn't happen when they work through all their objections. It happens when Jesus becomes personal. It happens when, in spite of questions and concerns and doubts, someone reaches the end of themselves, and they connect with their Heavenly Father, and they fall in love with Jesus in a way that allows them, again, to carry their questions with them across the line of faith. And, and so um, now with the time that remains, and really to set up the rest of this series, this four-part conversation, what I want to do is explore a narrative from a man named John's account of the life of Jesus, because I think it illustrates this principle. Like, this thing has been going on since the very beginning of Christianity. And then this scene from John's gospel happened during the period right near the beginning of Jesus' uh, time in his public ministry, when he was first sort of collecting those original 12 disciples. Uh, so the passage I want to read with you begins with these words. John tells us that one day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And uh, again, if you're reading this, you kind of blow right by this, but you should know that not only was Galilee the region in which Jesus had grown up, it was also home to the most religiously passionate Jews in the world at this time in history. Like you might even say that the Galilee region was the first century Jewish Bible belt, right? And the buckle of that belt was a three-town region near the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee that nerds like me call the Orthodox Triangle. And here's a map to kind of get you acclimated. They're the towns of Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. And by the way, when we take our trips to Israel, I will show you these three cities. But uh, these people in these towns were known for their insatiable desire to follow God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength. They ordered their entire life around following God and following his way. And so they organized their life practically around something they called the synagogue. I mean, you could think of it as a Jewish church, but synagogue basically means house of learning. They didn't go to the synagogue to worship during this period of history. They went there to learn. And so this is a shot of the ruins of the massive synagogue in Capernaum where religious education was like the top priority. They tell us it could seat around a thousand people and the town was probably 1,500. So you get the sense this was a big, big deal in this town and in this region. Additionally, this Orthodox Triangle was the region where the concept of discipleship was more prominent than anywhere else in the ancient world. Lots of rabbis or Jewish teachers uh, in the first century called disciples. And so not surprising, it was to this region that Jesus came to call his first disciples. So anyway, John, as he begins this section, wrote that upon arriving in the Galilee, he tells us, finding Philip, so a guy named Philip, Jesus said to him, follow me. And now it's easy for us to miss, but when Jesus invites this guy, Philip, to follow him, he was extending a formal invitation to become his disciple. 
In other words, Philip was invited to leave behind everything he'd ever known, family, friends, and work, in order to literally follow Jesus around and learn to be just like him 24-7, 365 days a year. And so apparently, at this point in the narrative, Philip had seen enough of Jesus to decide to accept his invitation. I mean, everyone in the town, or everyone in that region was buzzing about Jesus. Philip would have heard him teach. Very likely, he had seen him perform signs and wonders, those miracles. And and, and everybody, again, um, so consequently, when Jesus invited Philip to follow him, Philip wouldn't have hesitated. He had been offered an apprenticeship by the most captivating individual he had ever encountered. And so then John continues, and as he continues, he wrote that shortly thereafter, and this is fascinating, next verse, Philip found Nathanael. So this guy who just accepted the invitation to follow Jesus goes and finds this guy, Nathanael, and told him, and this is key, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. And and so apparently... Philip was so excited about his new relationship with Jesus, so excited about who he believed Jesus to be, that he immediately located one of his best friends and gave him news that would have left Nathaniel absolutely stunned. Because you see, in the first century, the Jewish people had been waiting for someone they referred to as the Messiah, the Anointed One, for literally hundreds of years. He he was the one who Moses, Israel's first and greatest leader, had written about, and many of the Jewish prophets who came later and who had written about the Messiah and in the documents that were later organized as our Old Testament. More significantly, the Messiah was the one who God had promised to send one day to rescue Israel and to lead Israel as their final and forever king. But but here's the thing. By the time of Jesus, the Jewish people had been waiting so long for the Messiah to come that many of them had decided that he would never come, that it must be some sort of metaphor in the prophets, and that God had functionally abandoned them. Hope had been lost. And so you can imagine Nathaniel's surprise when his friend Philip, someone he had likely known for his whole life, again, these towns were not large, ran up to him and told him, he's here. We found him. I'm telling you, Nathaniel would have had so many questions, especially when Philip identified who he believed the Messiah to be. So here's what he said. He said, the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And again, we blow right by this, but but in this moment, uh, Philip would have been shocked. He, he, He would have been absolutely stunned Because he was confronted with something that didn't resonate with his expectations. Even if he was one who believed that God would still send the Messiah, he had a big question about Jesus' identity. Because this was a question that very well could have kept Nathaniel from crossing the line of faith. He said, check this out, he said, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? He's like dogging Jesus' hometown, right? He's like, Dude, there's no way that the Messiah is from Nazareth. I mean, if Jesus, this guy, is from Nazareth, he's not the Messiah. If you told me that the Messiah was from Jerusalem or maybe Bethlehem, then I'd want to investigate this further. But Nazareth? Come on. No way. And and so obviously Nathaniel is not impressed by Jesus' hometown. And honestly, if you know the context, that makes sense. In the first century, Nazareth was barely on the map. 
It wouldn't have been much of a stretch to say that nothing significant had ever happened in Nazareth. And so from the perspective of Nathaniel, this news was understandably unbelievable. I was thinking about this week. I'm like, how could we maybe draw a parallel? So I'll draw a bad parallel and you'll kind of get what I'm talking about. Um, imagine a friend came to you and told you that someone had found a cure for cancer. And you're like, wow, I haven't heard about this yet. This is amazing. But you would assume, at least at a subconscious level, that it happened at one of the top research hospitals in the country, right? You might say, like, well, was it the team at Harvard or Johns Hopkins or the Cleveland Clinic? I mean, who made this breakthrough? And imagine your surprise if your friend looked at you and said, no, that's the crazy thing. The cure was discovered accidentally by a convicted moonshiner <laughs> in a former outhouse turned lab in the high mountains of North Carolina. And if that were the story, you would have a few questions, wouldn't you? Yeah, because it just wouldn't make sense. And that's the space that we find Nathaniel in in this narrative. He has two strong objections. First, he doesn't believe that Philip had really found the Messiah. And second, even if he did find the Messiah, there was no way the Messiah was from Nazareth. Now, obviously at this point, Philip could have made a huge mistake because he could have sat down with Nathaniel and said, Nathaniel, listen, if this is your obstacle, if Nazareth is your problem, then let's talk about it. I'll, I want to convince you why it shouldn't be your obstacle. Why, why don't you think that the Messiah could come from Nazareth? See, and they could have a conversation. At the end of the conversation, best case scenario, Nathaniel would have been convinced that maybe it's possible, not probable, but possible, that the Messiah could come from Nazareth. But, and and this, is, this is the point. Nathaniel wouldn't be any closer to meeting Jesus. And so fortunately, Philip didn't start up a conversation about Nazareth. Instead, he illustrated something that's been happening really for a couple of thousand years as it relates to adults crossing the line of faith in Jesus. He simply looked at Nathaniel and said, come and see. In other words, um, I don't know how to answer all your questions, Nathaniel, but I'm telling you, uh, this has become very personal for me, and you need to meet Jesus yourself. Like, I can't make a good argument about the whole Nazareth thing. Kind of surprised me too. But I'm telling you, all of my questions were totally overwhelmed in the light of who Jesus is. So Nathaniel, come and see. And apparently Nathaniel was curious, just curious enough to accept Philip's invitation. And so in short order, the two friends went and they located Jesus. And John recorded this. He said, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching he said of him, so not to him, but of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. He compliments Nathaniel. He says, like, Nathaniel's a guy who's honest with himself, and he's honest with those around him. He's a guy who doesn't pretend. Uh, he's a man of his word. He's a guy who, if he has questions, he's going to ask them. He's not just going to follow anyone, and he's not just going to believe anyone. And so again, he compliments him, but, but apparently when Nathaniel walked up to Jesus, Jesus said, oh, hi, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel was a little bit freaked out. <laughs> and so he asked Jesus a question. He goes, how, how do you know me? In other words, like a few minutes ago, um, I was convinced that you were a wannabe false messiah from a backwater town. But now, honestly, um, I'm a little bit curious and I'm a lot disturbed. Like, did we meet last year at the Feynman Bar Mitzvah? <laughs> oh, come on. That was really good. How's that going? Yeah. <laughs> We've met, yeah, how do you know me? And then Jesus answered, and it got creepier. He said, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. 
Again, that is hashtag creepy. But it also betrays the fact that Jesus wasn't a wannabe false messiah from a backwater town. And so in response to Jesus' answer, Nathaniel didn't begin to question him about how the Messiah could come from Nazareth because Jesus knew his name. And suddenly, all of this thinking and expectations and debates and wondering and questions about the Messiah, all the assumptions and all the anticipations sort of retreated in the light of something that was undeniably and intensely personal. It's like Jesus wasn't just the Messiah. Nathaniel, like, he's my Messiah. And that's why without hesitation, check out what he said next. He said, Rabbi, which is a term of respect. It means teacher, you are, look at this, the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In other words, Jesus, I believe that you are who Philip said that you were. And they didn't completely understand what that meant at this point. But, but you're the one. You're the anointed one. You're the one God sent. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God, the forever king of Israel. I'm telling you, in this moment, even though he had all of these questions, and even though even his understanding of who the Messiah was was way off, Nathaniel began to follow Jesus. And I don't think he ever worked the Nazareth thing out. Because the Nazareth thing didn't really matter. Because again, Jesus had made a personal connection with him. He had touched his life, and he would never be the same that's how rational adults with all sorts of valid objections become followers of Jesus. Okay, so now um, here's what I'm praying will happen for a whole bunch of you over the next few weeks as we explore this content together. I'm praying that all of your very legitimate questions and concerns and doubts about Christianity, about following Jesus will begin to retreat as you reflect on the reality that faith in Jesus doesn't begin when you get all of your questions answered. And that's a really good thing. Because honestly, a lot of our questions don't have answers this side of eternity. Instead, faith in Jesus begins when you accept the invitation to follow him, to allow him to prescribe the boundaries on your behavior. When you start to say, you know what? I don't understand every, I don't believe everything, but I understand something. I understand that Jesus is inviting me to live in a different, and a different way, a counterintuitive way. And if I try that, maybe I will come into contact with him. Because I'm telling you, once you begin to follow, you will experience how much he loves you and how worthy he is of your trust, both in this life and in in the life to come. I'm telling you, when that happens, one step at a time, you will find your very legitimate questions and concerns and doubts will begin to fade into the background. And here's why I say that. I'm convinced, just based on my experience and working with people all these years, your Heavenly Father wants to know you. He wants you to know Him way more than He wants you to have all your questions answered. And that's why my hope is that, you know, in a few years, we'll look back on this series as a time when a whole bunch of friends around here cross the line of faith in Jesus for the first time. So now before I let you go, um, I asked the band to, to perform a song just to give you some space to consider where you are in your relationship with God and just to be reminded of the love that he has for you. It's a beautiful song 
um, which at least for me burns through the fog of my questions and concerns and doubts. It's about the sort of love that God demonstrated for us all when he sent Jesus for us. And the song is called Love Like This. So let's listen to it together and then I'll close our time in prayer.
Would you stand? I'll close our time in prayer. If you came into this space and you'd need to talk to someone, we have some volunteers that'll be under the screen to your left. Would love to just meet with you and pray over you. But for the rest of us, Heavenly Father, we live in a time of questions and in a time of doubts and in a land that is so often confused. And I just pray that the wonder of your love for us would burn through the fog of all of our questions. That you would help us to see you as you are see your heart, your character, to be overwhelmed by grace. And I, I pray for friends who've never, who've never accepted the invitation of Jesus. I pray that over the next few weeks, um, you would be whispering to them, and this would become something not intellectual, not categorical, but very, very personal, and though hard to describe, undeniable. Thank you for this place. We thank you for this community that we get to journey with one another as we follow the way of our forever King, your Son, Jesus Christ. And I ask your grace and your peace to be on us all in his name. And everyone said, Amen. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week.